Merry Christmas, everybody. Are y'all excited for Christmas? Love Christmas. What a great holiday. How many guys are decorated already for Christmas, ready to go? How many of you decorated pre-Thanksgiving? Come on, show your hands. Let's go. Amen. You are the real Christians. Okay, what about this? What about fake trees in the house? Fake trees in the house? Handful real trees, right? The real Christians. Okay, both. Let's go. Anybody got both? Let's go. We got both. Yeah, I mean, I love Christmas, love this idea of Christmas, uh, and it's going to be a great. I, I mean, I can't even believe that God would so create a culture where we get this opportunity to talk about Jesus for a whole month. Come on. Right. What a great. Amen goes right there. All right. Uh, hey, what a great privilege we have to talk about Jesus just even in culture about his birth that he came for us. What a great privilege um, to do that. So excited about the month and what God's going to do. Hey, uh, we are in this series called Mosaic. Let me hear you say Mosaic. Mosaic is just this idea is that there's some smaller pictures sometimes that we have of Jesus, but it makes up this larger understanding of who God is. It makes up this larger understanding. And if we'll step back for a minute, we can see some of these small pictures, but we can also see the whole picture better of who Jesus is. You know, when we started out the first week looking at what Jesus called himself, and Jesus called himself the son of man. And like, it's not even close. He called himself the son of man. He called himself this more than he called himself any other name. And the reason he did that is because it just means he came to be with us. Man, he came to be human like us. He came to do the things that we did. He came to sit um, with normal people. He came to go eat with them. He came to talk to their families. And we know that Jesus came as the son of man. And what, he, what this means is he knows, right? Jesus knows. He knows your struggle he knows what you're celebrating today. He knows where you're lonely. He knows where you're confused. Jesus knows. So that was what he called himself. Now his disciples primarily called him rabbi. You know, Jesus was a rabbi in Jewish culture that he had a group of followers that came around him. They lived with him. They saw how he did life. They saw how he navigated uh, questions. They saw how he taught and how his way of life was. And so they knew him as rabbi. And what he taught them was that his way was the easiest. Amen. Right. That, that we, amen. We're going to work on that today. Um, so he has this teaching and his teaching actually leads us to an easier way of life. And that's what his disciples called him. But then we had what the, what the early Jews would have called him, what they were expecting. And the Jewish culture would have called him Lamb of God. And they called him this because he came to take away the sin of the world. And Jesus knew that the root of the problem was sin. It wasn't our behavior. It wasn't our circumstances that the root of our problems all go back to sin. So he came to take that away. And then we also talked about what the early church called him. And the early church called him Lord. They called him Lord. In other words, someone to follow. And they, they, they taught and believed that his way was best. His way was best. And today what we're going to look at is what his critics called him. What did his critics call him? You, you know, they, they say that in every criticism there's some truth. That's not true because you've been criticized before and none of it was true. Hello, right? Now, I don't know anything about criticism as a pastor. Um, that's really funny, guys. Come on. Um, but, but sometimes when you face criticism, you know what? There may be some truth in it. There may be some truth in it. Oh, there may be that someone finds the truth, but they actually draw the wrong conclusions to that truth and that they are false in their criticism. Or it could be that the criticism is completely untrue. 
And so today we're going to look at the criticism that Jesus faced. And here's what I believe. I believe it's going to help us see some things differently. Like if your belief in Jesus is just that he's this moral code that I have to follow, some habits that I should get into, some disciplines that I should incorporate into my life, and they're kind of this checklist of boxes, what you're going to see today is that you actually have access to God himself, not just his list of do's and don'ts. And it could be today that maybe you're complacent in your faith. You're just going through the motion. You know, you're going to celebrate Christmas and you have a manger scene just because you're supposed to in your nativity scene. And uh, you're just kind of going through the motions. You know the things you're supposed to do, the places you're supposed to show up at. You're going you're gonna to find today, man, that, that it's so much more than going through the, your motions. I believe it's going to reignite some passion for Jesus in you today. And maybe today you're just curious. You're curious about who who Jesus is and you've been exploring and finding out more about him along the way, especially through this series called Mosaic and the different things that people called him and what that meant. And today I really believe it's going to help you cross the line of faith as you see him differently. Amen? We're ready. So Luke chapter 7, let's grab our Bibles. We're going to start in uh, the book of Luke, Luke chapter 7. You'll notice we always open our Bible. We really believe this is the key to life change. There's two ways you can use your Bible. You can use it to hit somebody over the head. Have you ever done that? You've seen that happen. Um, That's not what we're going to do. Or you can use it and open it up and let God breathe words of life into you, right? And so this is our goal. This is why we have the Bible. The reason why we open it is because we want you to be able to go home and read it, maybe um, not just maybe hear some things said in a service uh, in the 30 minutes or so that I speak, or maybe 40. And so it can breathe some life into you. And so Luke chapter seven, Luke was a doctor and Luke was a close uh, contemporary of Jesus. He followed Jesus. He was part of the early church. So he had a very unique perspective. He had a very methodological approach to uh, unpacking who Jesus was and writing about him. And so what we have is Jesus is teaching and primarily he's got a group of his critics in the audience. Now, some of his followers are around as well, but he's got a group of his critics. And this is what Jesus says in verse 31. He says, to what then shall I compare the people of this generation and what are they like? So, so you see where he's going immediately. He's speaking to people. and He's saying, what are you like? How can I compare you? What's a good metaphor for how you operate, how you believe, how you criticize me? Like, what do you like? And he says, this is how they're like. They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to one another. Now, now to understand the context of what Jesus is saying here, in the marketplace, children would gather to play children's games. So they would have a marketplace that had this big open space with some, some market stores around it, little booths around it. And so while mom and dad are shopping, The kids are in the middle, they're playing games. So he's saying, you're just like kids in the marketplace and you're playing games and you're calling out to one another. You say, hey, wait, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. So what he's saying is there are some kids who are like, hey, we we sang for you. We sang a dirge, kind of a funeral song. I'll unpack that in just a second. You didn't didn't want to play that game. We we played the flute, you didn't want to play that game. Did Did you ever meet anybody when you were playing games in school? They were just too cool to play the games you were playing? You meet anybody like that? Like, ah, yeah, that that game, I don't want to play that game. Let's play a different game. Nah, I don't want to play that game either. I'm too cool for that. Now, he wouldn't say that, but this is the idea you get. Now, this is actually called the parable of the brats. You ever know anybody that was bratty? Like, anybody ever called you a brat? Anybody? Right? Let's go. Recently, huh, guys? I mean, it feels feels fresh. So, So the idea is the brat is someone who's spoiled, 
someone who has an agenda, someone who's going to do their own thing. And so Jesus is using this parable to kind of unpack what their generation is like. And so what these two games involved, if you, the first one, when he says, we played the flute for you and you did not dance, that was called the wedding game. And, and kids were used to seeing these big, extravagant, long weddings that would last anywhere from five to seven days. And these weddings were great celebration. They were a centerpiece of the Jewish culture. So kids would play this wedding game and they would all play different parts. But also another centerpiece of Jewish culture and the way they did some things differently was called the funeral game. Now for us, this sounds a little bit weird, doesn't it? That they would play a funeral game. But there are some things that, you know, other generations would think that we do that are weird. Did you know this? We're, we're not perfect. Like think about this one. Did you ever play kick the can when you were growing up? Yeah, come on. Like in Jesus' day, they would have said, what's a can, right? They thought we were weird. So they're playing this funeral game. And so that is where a dirge is sung. They're playing a funeral game. And so there's this group of kids playing the game like, hey, let's play the wedding game. No, we don't want to play that game. Hey, let's play a funeral game. No, we don't want to play that game. They were not interested. And so Jesus goes on to unpack exactly what he means by that. Verse 33 says this, For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. So which game is he playing? He's playing the funeral game. He is playing a dirge. Let me explain why that is. So John the Baptist, it says he's the greatest person ever born outside of Jesus. Like, that's a pretty high claim. Jesus says this about John the Baptist. And the reason why is because John the Baptist was sent to point people to Jesus. Like, Jesus didn't just show up on the scene and say, hey, I got you, right? They sent John the Baptist. Jesus and John the Baptist were born around the same time. So they grew up together. And this is what John the Baptist did. He's the one. You should follow him. He's the man. He's the one you've been expecting. He's the Lamb of God. You should follow him. All you guys are following me, go follow Jesus. Now, now John the Baptist has some quirks. John the Baptist was a little eccentric. So John the Baptist, number one, he lived out in the wilderness. Number two, he ate locusts and honey for dinner. Like John the Baptist was the first no-carb guy. Locusts and honey, that's what it, that was his meal, things out in the wilderness. And he wore clothes of camel hair. Now, this was before, like, those kind of clothes were cool, right? There was no outfitter store. You couldn't go buy these down at REI. He, he, and he was, he was odd. And his message, his tone was fire and brimstone. You remember fire and brimstone when you were a kid? As a matter of fact, you come here because you don't like that anymore. Um, but I'm about to give you some. <laughs> his, his tone was harsh and fiery. And so he, he was kind of on this end of the spectrum now. Because of that, they said he has a demon. Now, was there any truth to that? No. His critics said he had a demon. Was there some odd behavior? Absolutely. But they drew the wrong conclusion for John. The, the evidence did match up. He didn't have a demon. He was just pointing people to Christ. He was the one playing the funeral game. He was the one who was playing the dirge. But now notice that Jesus goes on in verse 34. He says, the son of man has come eating and drinking because John was always fasting. He says, I'm eating and drinking. And you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard. Because John the Baptist had isolated himself from people and Jesus did the exact opposite. John's playing the funeral game. Jesus came just to be with people. He came to eat with them. He came to sit with them. 
He came to hear their problems, to deal with their family. He came to help them navigate crises. He came to be with them when they were lonely. He came to heal them when they got sick. He came to show up when they needed help. Like he was a completely different type of person. This is who Jesus was. This was the game that he was playing. And they say, we don't want to play that game either. And so in this is where we find the criticism. In verse 34, he says, the son of man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So here we see the primary criticism of Jesus by his enemies, that he was a friend of sinners. Now, the question is, is he? Was he? Like, what does the evidence say? And we're going to unpack that a little bit. Now, now Jesus is frustrated with him. He says, you've had both extremes. You've had John the Baptist. You've had me. You still won't follow the kingdom of God. And then in verse 35, he says this, wisdom is justified by her children. The proof is in the pudding. Like, what is it that you see in the life of Jesus that would, that, that would find him guilty of being a friend of sinners? See, this is the context where he gets this he gets this criticism, but let's look at the credibility of this, this criticism. I'm going I'm to pull out three different stories just briefly out of the Bible today that just give us an idea of why they would accuse him of being a friend of sinners. Now, the first thing I probably need to do is just kind of unpack exactly um, what, what a sinner is, okay? Because if we're going to be a friend of sinners, I think sinner is going to be something that we need to have a, a, a good grasp on. You know, in Jesus' day, it, it, there was some sin, when these t- phrases were used, it was people who had bad reputations, man, people who were the talk of the town. You know, I think in our minds, sometimes we have like white collar sins and black collar sins. You know, white collar sins are the ones that we all do. We may break the law, we may speed, we may tell a little lie, we may do some things. But then there's those black collar sins that cause people to talk about you, you know, the people that we, we talk about, the sinners that Jesus is talking about here, is, you know, it's that, it's that lady who was at the Christmas party and skirt was too high and neckline was too low. It was that dad at the Christmas party who drank just a little bit too much and everybody was talking about him the next day. And it was that, uh, it's that husband that uh, seems to always be hanging out at lunch at the restaurants with other women. It was that, it's that lady who always seems to talk way too loud and, and draw attention to herself. Like these are the types of people that, that when they refer to sinners, they refer to people like that. People who have these reputations that you wouldn't want to be seen with. People that you'd be in the grocery store, you turn around and go the other way. Or maybe you go to walk out in your driveway, you see them coming, you go back inside because you don't want your neighbors to see you talking to them. This is the, this is the context for friend of sinners. Now over in Luke chapter 15, same, same book, same author, just a diff- little bit different story. We see, we see some, some evidence, some indicators that Jesus was a friend of sinner. How many of you guys have heard of the parable of the prodigal son? So, so you, know, you know the overarching theme of that is this idea that there was a son, he left home, and he went and spent his money on everything sinful he possibly could, everything embarrassing he possibly could. But then when he comes home, his dad welcomes him with open arms. Like this is what the story Jesus is about to, t- to tell. But to get into that, this is, what Je- this is what happens. In chapter 15, verse 1, it says, Now the tax collectors 
and sinners, they always go together, were all drawing near to him, meaning to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes, the children, the brats, they grumbled and they said, this man receives sinners and he eats with them. He receives sinners and he eats with them. You see, what we see in this passage, in this story, in this, in this situation is that Jesus welcomes sinners. That, that's, that's a true statement. They were attracted to him. They found him worthy of their conversation. Man, they, they found where he was and they went to him. Jesus welcomed them. I mean, when I think about Christmas, I mean, I just think about being welcomed. Like some of you guys are going to have some kind of Christmas party or Christmas gathering. People are going to come over. They're going to knock the door, knock on the, knock the door down, knock on the door, and you're going to open the door and let them in. So glad to see you. Music's going to be playing. Food's going to be set out. The house is going to be clean. The dogs are going to be put up. You're going to be like, we are so glad you're here. You welcome them into your house. And don't you love being around welcoming people? Like, isn't that, wouldn't you much rather be around someone who's welcoming than unwelcoming? You know, welcoming people are positive. They're selfless. They ask you about you. And they want to know about you. They want to know about your problems. And they engage you. And you, people are attracted to people who are welcoming. That's like I always love seeing Ter Terrence and Cassandra at the door because they're always welcoming, always positive, always encouraging. Now, do you know people like that? Are you like that? Don't you know people that you don't want to be around? Like when you answer the phone, you look at it, you're like, ah, feels like a void, direct a voicemail to me. Or Man, I'll just text them later. Oh, this is going to be a long time. Or you see them out in public somewhere, you're like, oh. But there are those people, when they call, you want to answer because you know it's going to be good. You know it's going to bring you energy. And this is what Jesus did. You know, it reminds me of a story from the best Christmas movie ever, Polar Express. Come on. Hello. Yeah. That was, that was, that was, that was good. I get it. There's some other movies out there. But in Polar Express, there's this little boy named Billy. Billy's the outcast. And as the, as the Polar Express comes by, you see that Billy is on the wrong side of the tracks. And Billy doesn't know if he can get on the train or not. And so finally, eventually, Billy gets on the train and he climbs up and he goes and sits off in a car all by himself. But then you have the other two kids who are the, the main uh, characters in that story, the hero boy. They, they want to take care of Billy. They want to be sure he has some hot chocolate. When the train's about to leave him, they want to be sure he gets on the train. When his gift about, is about to get left, they want to be sure he gets his gift because they welcomed him. This is the impact of Jesus on sinners. Hey, what kind of people welcome you? What type of people welcome you? Jesus does. So if this is evidence that he's a friend of sinners, he might be guilty. Over in Luke chapter 19, uh, no, sorry, Luke chapter 7, right after the, the parable that Jesus just told. In Luke chapter 7, there's a situation where Jesus is invited over to a Pharisee's house. Again, Pharisees are the children in the story. They're the brats in the story who won't believe. And in verse, in verse 36, Jesus is, they're telling this story about Jesus, and Luke writes this. He says, one of the fairies, Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. So Jesus goes in and he's just doing what they normally do, hanging out. And it says, behold, a woman of the city who was a what? Sinner. 
She was a sinner. When she learned that he was reclining at the table at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment, which was very expensive. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Now, in those days, you didn't touch sinners. They made you unclean. They were kind of people you wanted to be hands off, arm's length, can't get too close, we'll catch something from. But Jesus came along, he touches sinners. He touches sinners. It reminds me a little bit of when we were in middle school. Did you ever, did you ever look at, if you're a guy, or, or you always look at girls and say, ooh, they got cooties. I can't touch them. This is the religious version of that. Unclean. Can't touch them. Now, now the power of touch is something that we don't always process until COVID happened. You know, because there are people who, who don't have, they live alone and they don't get out to interact with people at all. They don't get any physical touch. And if you look at studies done on infants who don't have physical touch from anybody, not just parents, but anybody, there are so many emotional disorders that come from that. Man, there's something about physical touch, human touch that helps us, that makes us better, that makes us comfortable with ourselves, that strengthens us. And when you're someone that nobody will touch, and what does that do to your decision making? What does that do to your relationships? What does that do to how you think about yourself? You see, in Jesus' day, there was a lot of categories of people that were considered unclean or untouchable or off limits simply because of their behavior. You know, they would have someone like this who was sinner in this context was more than likely a prostitute. Can't be, can't be around her. She'll rub off on me. She'll make me unclean. She's untouchable. And Jesus came along to those who were unclean, untouchable, off limits. And he says, no, I got you. You're not off limits to me. And there's so many areas in our life that sometimes we may feel are untouchable. And there's some things in your life, some walls that you've put up that, that are in the past. And you're like, I don't want to talk about that. I don't want to go there. And that's the beautiful thing about Jesus. He's just really disruptive in his honesty. And there was this woman that he encountered once. And This is his first encounter with her. He'd never met her before, but her history was she'd had five husbands and the man she was living with wasn't her husband. And so he starts talking to her and about three sentences in, Jesus says, go get your husband. He just dives right into the place she didn't want anybody to know about, place she didn't want to talk about, the place she didn't want anybody to see, the place that was off limits. Hey, what areas of your life are off limits? And what areas of your life are too far gone, you would never tell a soul about. You want to keep them in the darkness. Listen, until they come into the light, they can never be healed. They can never be undone. And they will always have have you in bondage and change and hold you back. Man, Jesus comes in and he gets into those places that are off limits and he makes us whole. So, Jesus touches sinners. Maybe he is guilty of being a friend of sinners. Luke chapter 19, this is a story that some of you grew up in church. You've heard a lot of this story before. How many of you guys have heard the story of Zacchaeus? Handful. How many of you guys know the song? 
Will you come lead that for us? Um, if you didn't grow up here, there's a song that goes along with Zacchaeus. It just kind of gives his story, and it's, it's catchy, and I will not sing it for you. I'll spare you that, um, but I'll make an album, and maybe they'll post it. No. Um, so there's a guy named Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is a tax collector. Now, tax collectors were considered the worst of the worst, and here's why. They were Jews, number one. They worked for the Roman government, the enemy. They worked for the enemy, number two, and they were extortionists. So they built their wealth on the back of their Jewish friends. So they were traitors. Nobody wanted to have anything to do with them. And so Zacchaeus, man, he, he was a tax collector. Not only that, he had the stigma of being short. And so Zacchaeus goes looking for Jesus and he encounters Jesus. And in verse 7 in, in 19, after he's encountered Jesus, Jesus says, hey, I want to go eat at your house today. So Jesus goes to eat at him. And this is what, this is the outcome. It says when, when they saw it, again, the Pharisees is who we're talking about, the children, the brats, when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and he said to the Lord, behold, Lord, Half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I had defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it four times. Four times. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. We see Jesus' mission statement right in there. Now, now, now here's what I love about this. Jesus gives sinners a chance and a challenge to change. Jesus gives sinners a chance and a challenge to change. You know, so many times we think, oh, Jesus is love. We just got to be around love. I was in, recently I was traveling and we had, I was at a restaurant and the uh, waitress comes over and she takes our order. She is just so happy. She's just so joyful. And so we ask her, hey, what's that about? And she says, oh, it's just about love. It's just about love. And sometimes we just think, hey, being a friend, it's just about letting people do what they want to do, even how, no matter if it's stupid and destructive. But Jesus calls on people to change, and we, we use the word repent to describe that. Now, repent so many times feels like a condemnation of my behavior. Like you're doing something wrong, you need to, be, you need to repent. You're about to do something wrong, you need to repent. You are just a terrible person, you need to repent. And, and certainly, repent means to change, but it's not a condemnation. It actually is an invitation to a different, better life. That's what repent means. It just literally means to change my mind. I'm going to change my mind about going my own way, doing the things that will destroy me, doing the things that I've been doing that have been taking me down and holding me back and doing things the way Jesus wants. So we see that Jesus gives people a chance and he challenges them to change. Jesus is never going to leave you how you are, right? He's not content to leave you how you are. Now we love, love, love second chances, don't we? Man, we love stories of second chances. How many of you guys ever watched The Voice or any of those competition shows? Here's what they do. It doesn't matter how good the person can sing. If they've got a good story, it's compelling, and you know the story. You know how they were homeless when they were six and how their parents left them, and you know the difficulties they had. So now they step into singing. You're like, oh, I just want them to have a chance. I hope they do so good. Or maybe Shark Tank. That's another one. Oh, Shark Tank, man, we're going to tell you the story and you're going to get emotionally engaged. It's going to make you want them to win. Or as we watch the Winter Olympics in February, this is how it's going to go. Someone's going to come up and they're going to be about to go downhill at 75 miles an hour. And they're going to begin to tell you the story of how they grew up and the hard training they had and the difficulties that they overcame. Because we love giving people a chance. You know why that is? 
because we want a chance ourselves. We want a chance. We want someone to give us a chance. Some of you have gotten a chance. Maybe it was from your boss at work. They hired you when nobody else would. Maybe it was that's how you got married. Your now wife gave you a chance when you weren't worthy of getting a chance. It could be a coach that gave you a chance, a teacher that gave you a chance. It could have been a friend that gave you a chance. Man, this is the business that Jesus is. But he doesn't just give us a chance and then not do anything. There's always a challenge to change. As you know, friends, what do they do? They make you better. Have you ever had a friend or we'll call them acquaintance that only called you when they needed something? Maybe they wanted to borrow some money. And I'm not talking about your college student. You never hear from them unless they need something. They need help moving. They need bail money. They need a financial help. They need a shoulder to cry on. That's the only time they call you. That's not truly the kind of friend that Jesus is. Jesus always helps us to move forward. He always helps us to be better. He always sees everything that we could be and believes in it even when we may not. You know, a true friend, as they say, stabs you in the front. A true friend will tell you if you have food in your teeth. And a true friend will tell you if you're flies now. A true friend will tell you if you're trying to control your children. A true friend will tell you that that conversation you keep having with that girl at work is going to lead to a divorce. A true friend will tell you if you're drinking too much and it's about to be a problem in your marriage. I mean, a true friend is going to point out areas where they can help you. Is this what Jesus did? Yeah. Is he a friend of sinners? Guilty as charged thank god he is you know we get a characteristic of his type of friendship in john chapter 15 jesus is at the last time he's going to be with them, with his disciples his closest followers are around him his friends and he's going to leave them with some words right he's going to leave them with some encouragement some things he doesn't want them to forget and it's his last chance and he, he has he measured his words carefully to be sure he got the message to them that he needed to get to them. And in John chapter 15, verse 12, it says this. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You didn't choose me, but I chose you. And I pointed that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. So what characterizes Jesus' friendship is this word love. Love. Like sometimes we think Jesus died just to give us another mulligan, a blank check, a second chance. And Jesus loved us deeply. Now, the word love in our culture has uh, lost a lot of its meaning. And Jesus lays it out pretty clearly that love is just my commitment to someone else's good. You know, so many times we confuse what love is because there's so many ways we could use it. For instance, I could say, hey, I love a chocolate donut. That's one way to, to look at it. Not a lot of teeth there. just means I enjoy it. Or I can say I love my wife. Completely different meaning. I'm going to give my life for her. I'm going to do what I can for her life to be better. And if you love somebody, you're going to do whatever you can to, and be committed to their life being better. If you're a parent in the room, this is what you've done probably, hopefully. How many parents in the room have thought to, thought to themselves, man, I just want my kids to have it better than I did. 
I don't want them to make the same mistakes that I did because stupid hurts. And I don't want them to go through the pain that I've been through. And we had this commitment to their good. If you're married, your commitment should be to the, for the good of your spouse. And if, if people work for you, your commitment should be for their best. This is what Jesus did for us. It says he loved us and he laid his life down for us. This is what that love looked like. And when you love someone, you will lay your life down for them. And sometimes that's uncomfortable. Sometimes you have to tell some truth that feels uh, almost cruel, but it's the only way to save someone from certain destruction. And Jesus laid his life down for us. Now, so many times we think Jesus came in judgment, but he didn't. He came in love. And the difference is this. Like, Jesus doesn't want to get you in trouble. He wants to get you out of trouble. You know, judgment and justice wants you to be in trouble. He wants to tell you where you're wrong. He wants to tell you where you failed. He wants to tell you the pain you're going to go through is consequence. But then there's that type of love that feels different. They're trying to get you out of trouble. They're trying to point the way out. They're trying to point the path forward. They're trying to point the way to life. And this is Jesus. Man, Jesus didn't come that we would be condemned. The Bible says this, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That Jesus came not to condemn us, but that we might have life and have it to the full. Right? Jesus didn't come to get you in trouble. He came to get you out of trouble. Now, he, he talks about laying down his life, and this, he really is love in action. Like, this is Jesus. If you'll notice that Jesus lays his life down without any agreement on our part or commitment on our part to actually enjoy and partake in that. You see, Jesus doesn't need anything from you. He has something for you. Jesus doesn't need anything from you. He's not looking for your money. He's not looking for your time. He's not looking for your commitment. He's not looking for you to follow the rules better. He's not looking for your good behavior. He's not looking for your morality. He's not looking for your activism. And he has something for you. And what he has for us is life. And he has it to the full. And then he, he talks to his disciples and he makes this ship shift from servant to friends. Now, up until that point, they're following him as rabbi, and they're just doing the things he says to do. But now he's making this shift because servants just do what they're told. But friends, on the other hand, they get some insider information. They get access to life. And so he brings them in as friends. There is no other religious system, no other God, no other spiritual pathway that actually has God as our friend. And he points out that's why he wants to leave them with this, that they are his friends. And so he talks about laying his life down. And he talks also about this idea that, man, you're going to do the things that I want you to do. And you know as well as I do, if you have a friend and they want you to do something, you're going to do it. You're going to do it for them. If you're in a marriage and your spouse is your friend and they want you to do something, you're going to do it. Why do you do that? I'll do what you want because I love who you are. And this is why we would follow Jesus. We'll do what he wants. Why? Because we love who he is and what he's done for us, that he laid his life down for us because he is a friend of sinners. Praise the Lord, he is. Man, he's not waiting around the corner to bash us with the Bible. Man, he's not lurking in the bushes to catch us doing something wrong. And he's a friend, it says, who sticks closer than a brother. Listen, for people who are looking for that moral code to follow, Jesus shows up as access to God himself. And that we have access to God, that we have friendship with God. And for people who've grown complacent, man, God is a friend, just makes him alive every single day. That when I wake up in the morning and I see the sunrise, I'm like, thank you, God, you did that so I could see your beauty. When I wake up yesterday and I get to spend the whole afternoon outside because of the amazing weather, I can say, hey, God, you did that. It may seem small in the grand scheme of things to some people, but I know you did that for me to enjoy. 
when I wake up in the morning and I open my eyes, I'm like, God, thank you for another day to have breath and life. Man, when I come on a Sunday and I come to church, I'm like, hey, God, thank you that I get to worship and I get to hear your words and I get to see friends and I get to understand how big you are and how much the plans for you, the plans you have for me are. Like that's what it means every single day as I drive to work and I lock the doors and I feel like my commute is too long. Thank God that I get a few moments of quiet in the day where no one can ask me for a decision. And everything becomes involving God into every aspect of our life. Man, that's what it means. Man, that's what it means. If you're complacent, this is where God being a friend will radically reignite your faith. And if you're curious, man, God loves you. He came for you. And he didn't come to judge you, condemn you. He came that you would have life because he's a friend. You know, he came. He came as the son of man to be with us as a friend. He came as a rabbi to lead us as a friend. He came, he came as the Passover lamb to give his life for us as a friend. You know, he came as the Lord so that we could understand the best life possible as a friend. Jesus, friend of sinners, guilty. Aren't you glad? Let's pray together. So as we pray, that just means that we're just going to steal our minds for just a moment, steal our hearts for just a moment, so that we can just kind of let God fill in some space right now. And we close our eyes just so our attention can be fully focused on God and can be fully and fully present for God to speak into our hearts. So that's what we're going to do just for a few moments. We'll just close our eyes, focus our minds on God. And maybe for you, you've never understood Jesus as your friend. Man, you didn't know that he wanted to be present with you, that he didn't, he didn't want to reject you but welcome you home, that he had areas in life that he wanted to change, places where he wanted to show you where you're headed towards destruction, places where he wanted to affirm you and say, good job. Maybe that's you today. And if you just like to understand more about Jesus' as friend, the step for you is just to make this commitment to follow him. And the way that we do that is just a simple commitment of our heart. And I'm going to lead you in a prayer if that's you today, just because this is the most important decision you can ever make. And what a great time to make it is we just are on the, on the verge of the greatest celebration of Christmas we've ever seen. So just repeat after me. Dear God, thank you for giving me life. I confess that I have sinned and need your sacrifice. I choose to follow you today in every possible way. And the Bible says that when you've done that, man, God steps into your life in a, in a unique way as a friend, not as a judge, not as a juror, not with a verdict, God, but with, with a friendship. And if that's you today, I'd love to be able to help you mark the moment today. So I'm going to ask you to do something simple that we do every single week. I'm just going to invite you to, to raise your hand in the air. I'm going to invite you. I'm going to count to three. I'm going to invite you just to raise your hand in the air. And let's just make eye contact just to solidify and mark this moment today. On the count of three, one, two, three. Praise the Lord. Amen. Praise the Lord. God, I know that sometimes we need a friend, a friend who sticks closer than a brother, a friend who will challenge us, but also encourage us and be with us and who will lock arms with us to help us through 
difficult times, God, who will raise hands in celebration when something great happens. And so, God, I pray that today we've just been able to see you differently, to see you as a friend, to see you as someone who's sitting in the car next to us as we drive to work, man, who's sitting at the bar as we get up for coffee in the morning. God, you're everywhere and want to be involved in every aspect of our life, God. And we just pray that somehow we'd be able to give you glory. And God, as we enter into the Christmas season, that just like we introduce our welcoming friends to other friends, God, we would just be diligent to introduce people to you. God, I pray that right now in this moment, 1215, God, you give us one name. Man, it, may, it could be a coworker, it could be a colleague, it could be a neighbor, it could be a family member. God, it could be uh, someone that gets at our favorite restaurant, Lord. God, it could be someone that uh, we may feel like we don't even want to be around at times and we're a little ostracized from. God, it could be someone from our past or someone we just met yesterday. God, I pray that you just give us that one name, that one person that we would welcome, that we would welcome into your presence. God, that we would talk to them about who you are and what you've done in our life. God, we'd invite them to experience the greatest gift ever given, Jesus as friend. Thank you for this. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.